This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley, and today we're talking with author and humorist R. Eric Thomas. You know that expression, you can never go home again? It's a reminder of how nostalgia can sometimes warp our sense of the past. Our Eric Thomas's new book explores what it actually feels like in practice to go back to the place where you were born, especially when your relationship with that place is complicated. The book is called Congratulations, the Best is Over, and it's a series of humorous essays recounting Thomas's journey back to his hometown of Baltimore. After going off to college, Thomas thought he'd left the city in the rearview mirror until his husband got a new job there, forcing him to wrestle with the life and version of himself he thought he'd left behind. Our Eric Thomas is a television writer, playwright, and author of the best-selling book, Here For It, or How to Save Your Soul in America, Reclaiming Her Time, The Power of Maxine Waters, and the young adult novel, Kings of Be More. Thomas is also the long-running host of The Moth in Philadelphia, and previously a senior staff writer for Elle Online, which he wrote the popular Eric Reads the News column. Our Eric Thomas, welcome to Fresh Air. Tanya, I am so excited to be here. Good to talk to you. I know, me too. I'm glad to have you. So you call this book of essays a coming of middle age collection. And I love that so much because there really aren't enough middle age stories out there. How does it how does it feel to be in your new form as a middle aged person? You're 41, right? I'm 42, um, but I look 27. Um, Yes. It feels, you know, I have to say it's every time I hear that phrase, which I made up and have been using to promote this book, I also cringe a little bit, not because I don't want to be the age that I am, um, but because, you know, because of the question inherent in the title, like, is the best over? You know, my therapist, um, Brian, my former therapist in in Baltimore, uh, was talking me through some of the issues I was having adjusting to living at home. And he was like, you know, this is a very normal thing for you as you move into middle age. And I was like, move into where? Like, no, no, no. Because <laughs> I, you know, like, and because I, I I would tell him about, you know, my my parents' experience of middle age, where in their 40s, they were going through job stress, and they lost their parents, and they had kids that were both achieving, but also struggling. And, you know, by the end of my parents' 40s, all their parents had, uh, had, had, died and I had dropped out of college and I was moving back, living back at home and they were hard years and I didn't want to live hard years. But I also remember that as a time of achievement. My mother got her doctorate. My father moved into the job that he would eventually retire from. So I, every decade of my life has been better than the one beforehand. And I want to believe that this decade also, uh, and the decades further, will be also really wonderful. I think you heard you say, I heard you say that this book explores the middle, not just in an age sense, but what it's like when you're in transition from one point of life to another. That's exactly what you're saying here. And so your move from Philadelphia back to your hometown of Baltimore after your husband takes a job as a pastor there was one of those big transitions. It was very much a middle space that you were in. This was a big deal because you used to actually say, I don't even want to move back to Baltimore to be buried, which is a very powerful statement. Yeah. 
Well, and I, you know, and I hesitated to put that in the book, but it was true. Um, and of course, it ended up on the book jacket. So, um, you know, but it is where I begin in this story. And you always have to go someplace in a story. And the place I began was in this really fraught relationship with the city. And it's not the city's fault, but Baltimore is a city that has gotten a pervasively bad rap. Um, and I knew that as a resident, I knew that as somebody who lived on a block where they would film the television show Homicide and the television show The Wire. And so, like, not only was my block a place that had been redlined into desolation and um, and disrepair, but it was so convincing as a place of no hope that it was used as a Hollywood backdrop for um, a, a cautionary tale um, for years on television. And so I thought to myself, when I got out of Baltimore and moved to Philadelphia and found myself through storytelling, through community, um, through therapy, and eventually through love, which I talk about in here for it, I, I felt for a while that if I went back to Baltimore, I would lose all that, like a spell breaking. And then I found myself there with my husband, with the person that I found in Philadelphia. And I was surrounded by the ghosts of the person that I used to be. And I would tell him these stories as we rode around town. I just point to things and say, oh, that's, that's where I was, you know, in an attempted carjacking. And, oh, you know, that's, I had a really bad experience here. And I got thrown out of, you know, this cab here because they didn't want to go to my neighborhood. It was too dangerous. And David was like, <laughs> David's my husband. He was like, did you know that every story about Baltimore is the saddest thing I've ever heard? And I was like, I'm just making color commentary. But I needed to find new stories. And that's the journey I go on in this book. You mentioned your your childhood in Baltimore. You left to go to college. You pretty much never went back for any extended amount of time. But this area that you grew up in, as you said, it had been redlined for more than 40 years. Did those depictions that you saw on television and The Wire, for instance, did they feel accurate or affirming or was it hard for you to watch it felt like the way that the neighborhood was designed to function, um, which was not the way that life functioned inside of my parents' house. And here for it, I describe my growing up as being inside of a bubble. And we describe people who live in a bubble as out of touch. And I think that actually we were deeply in touch. Bubbles are also transportation devices. Um, they lifted us out of the mire of uh, the circumstances that are outside our door, the crime, the violence, the lack of opportunity, and into a, a sense of self that was um, positive and full of possibility. My parents told me and my brothers that we could do anything. Um, and then they showed us, they showed us in libraries and in love and in um, taking us to different schools and taking us out physically out of the space, but also creating a world inside of the house that was different than the world outside, not because we were better than any of those people, but because the, but because we were, it was important for them to, for us to have a different narrative. So when I would watch The Wire, it's, I had this weird experience. I came back right after college and I was substitute teaching and I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm so miserable and I would come out of my house in the morning and I would find people who I perceived to be um, people who are addicted to drugs waiting for an open air drug market sitting on the step, which was not an uncommon occurrence. And I'd make my way through them. I'd say, excuse me, wrong steps, you know. Um, 
And then, you know, I turn the corner and there'd be a craft services table. And then I have to go back mm-hmm. and be like, wait, are you actors? Um, mm-hmm. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, we're actors. And I was like, well, get off my steps. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> and, and that's it's it's hard to know if you're in the right story, if the story around you is constantly telling you that there is no hope for you. And I just knew that wasn't true. I thought it was really interesting. I think it was around the time The Wire came out or it was like at its height, you wrote this young adult novel called The Kings of Beemore, which is set in Baltimore. It's about two queer kids having a very Ferris Bueller's day kind of day off. I love how you say writing this allowed you to tell a story of Baltimore that is not rooted in trauma. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I I wrote Kings of Beemore in 2020, um, so a little bit after The Wire. Um, But um, I was very invested in telling a new story of Baltimore. And at this point, you know, the Kings of Beemore is my third book. It was my first novel. And I was like, oh, I am the storyteller now. Um, I, you know, and this is no disrespect to the creators of The Wire. You know, it's not about <laughs> Eric versus The Wire. I think it's a very good show. Um, and for there were many years where every white person I met who I told I was from Baltimore, they would say, I love The Wire. The Wire, right. As if that was a compliment <laughs> to me personally. Um, so I would say, thank you. <laughs> um, and um, But Kings of Beemore is an opportunity to tell a different story. And it isn't, I don't see it as wish fulfillment or fantasy. I see Baltimore as a city of art and music and food. Um, of, of It's a very black city. Um, it is also a very diverse city. It's a city where there's a lot of queer opportunity and queer community. And I wanted to give that um, to readers. And I wanted to give it to two black teens that, who don't experience, you know, homophobia inside of the book, who are not, um, who aren't experiencing racism inside the book. And it's not like it doesn't exist. It is very much a part of the world because they live in the real world. But I knew that it was possible for them to have a story where the reason that we're telling the story is not to remind the reader that it is hard to be them. It's to remind the reader that as humans, they have such a great capacity, these two boys have such a great capacity for love and for hope. Um, Because I know that's true. That's something that I fought very hard for for myself. Your parents... um really provided you this space within Baltimore. So there was home, there was that that interior life, and then there was what was happening all throughout the city. You also grew up in an evangelical Christian community. And your last book before this one actually ends with you marrying your husband, David, who is a pastor. I think you actually said that um, that ending sounded too perfect, which it kind of does, too. Um, but you had to grapple with a few things between childhood and getting married around your sexual orientation and your faith. I did. I did. And it's another one of those stories where I thought that there was only one narrative and I thought that there was only one ending. And, you know, the church that I grew up in, not only was there... Um, Uh, very negative messaging around LGBTQ people. But there was also this narrative that I intuited that was about suffering and that we deserved to suffer. Um, And I looked around at these people that I loved so much. Um, It was an all-black church, and many, most of the people were, you know, lower middle class or lower class. And I said to myself, I think some of this suffering is not actually rooted in sin or in our inherent badness, I think some of this is actually 
systemic. Um, I didn't have that word back then. I was 13. But I, um, I struggled with this, this idea that we were in the wrong story, too. And so I, I, I searched for faith community for a long time. One time I went to visit a church with uh, my good friend Jake, um, who also grew up um, in uh, evangelical spaces and was searching for um, a, a church room that would accept him. And we found this church um, that was open and affirming, and we went, and everybody was wearing a rainbow pin, and they were so excited to see us. And we had accidentally dressed um, exactly alike, and so we looked like boyfriends or missionaries or, I don't know, maybe missionary boyfriends. And we weren't. We were just friends. And we were like, oh, you know, it's great that you have a lot of gay people here. This is wonderful. And they were like, oh, we don't, but we really want to. Um, Mm. And that was lovely, but we wanted to be in a space where we actually— we're both welcomed, wanted, but also we already were. And that's what I found when I found David's church. Um, the conflict, of course, about finding a church that was open and affirming and had a queer pastor and many other queer people is that then I had to decide, do I want to be a congregant or do I want to be a boyfriend? Because um, you can't be both. Um, so You can't be both. No, you know. And so then I was like, oh, what, what a rom-com dilemma I'm in. Um, and so what then do you I did mean nothing. you can't be both? Well, you know, David would not date a congregant, which is, I think, morally right and, um, and spiritually healthy. And so if I was going to him for spiritual guidance, for mentorship, um, for community, then I couldn't be pursuing a, re- a romantic relationship with him. He has very clear ethical boundaries, um, which is new for me. I was like, ethics? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> what? And um, and so, like, you know, we met a, at, a, um, at a, a, a panel at the LGBT Community Center, and I was so compelled by him and his ability to tell stories. And um, I was like, I want to go to your church, which, apparently, which I didn't know, put up all the guardrails. And so he gave me his business card, and I was like, Okay, well, I can't, I can't text emojis to this and, you know, good morning, boo. You know, I can't do that. So, so I did nothing. Um, but then he showed up at a one-person show I was doing, um, a storytelling show that I – it was called Always the Bridesmaid, and it was about a search for God. Um, God it was, the tagline was search for God, boys, and baked goods. Um, and it was just about how I wanted to find a religious community and I wanted to find love. And sitting right there in the audience, I found both. So you all found this community in Baltimore through your husband's church. And I'm also wondering how that um, was their interaction with your your family's church as evangelical Christians as well. You said they weren't going to the same church that they did that you grew up in. But um, did that come together in a way that felt like you could be a part of a larger community, the one that you grew up in, in a sense, that involved your parents in this new place that you found? But it's it's fascinating to me because as I've gone on this journey of, of writing books, I have had different experiences where I've done book events and people from the old church and people from my parents' new church, which is more progressive, and people from uh, David's church, which is very progressive, have all sort of been in the audience. And I look out and I think to myself, like, oh, is this church too? And I am I am of the belief that Sometimes church is the building, you know, sometimes it is the walls and the the door and the stained glass and the choir loft and the smell of perfume and old hymnals. 
And that's great. That's a wonderful sensory experience. But sometimes church is literally wherever the people are. Um, and so church for me sometimes is a Beyonce concert or, um, or a gay bar on a great night um, or a, um, a car ride um, with one or two other people where we're really connecting with each other. And so I, I hungered, I think I kept looking for the building that I was supposed to walk into where they would say, you are home. And I don't, think, I don't know that that building exists. Maybe that's heaven. Um, maybe I'll get there um, and see it and I'll be like, oh, that's, I've been looking for this. But in the meantime, there are these churches all over this earth. And I'm grateful for that because there was never a moment where everything knit itself together. There were plenty of moments of welcome and change and new stories, but um, there was never, for me, because of the story that I'm living in, I think, a moment where everything all came together. You have this chapter in the book called Clap Until You Feel mm-hmm. It, and it's about the yearning. This is specifically about the yearning during a depressive state to feel something. Um that just makes me think of what you just said about finding church in places and spaces in this Beyonce concert mm-hmm. and the Taylor Swift concerts that mm-hmm. are happening now. I mean, it's become like a thing. It's bigger than I really ever remember before the pandemic concerts being. I actually have friends who are now traveling from state to state to go to Beyonce concerts. Mm-hmm. and. They're middle-aged women who are like have careers and families, but they are trying to connect to a thing. They're trying to have that feeling, that religious experience in a way. Oh yeah, yeah. I I went to I saw Beyonce um, uh, in D.C. Um, a little while ago, and I've never felt so deeply connected to myself, to uh, the other people in the space. Um, at, we're soaking wet. And so it felt like, and every time I've seen Beyonce recently, it's been soaking wet. And I'm like, oh, this is also, this is a baptism. And I don't mean it sort of, it's not connected to Christianity per se. It is connected to a deeper sense in, of your soul and something bigger. And I was like, I get, I get why people are roadies. I get why people go see Broadway shows like Hades Town or Kimberly Akimbo 30, 40 times. I get why I go back to the page and to write plays, to write television, to write books, but specifically plays. I think about like I am trying to get to this palace of big feelings, this place where I can not be neutral, where I can be in a room full of people who are feeling something very specific, but also the same thing. To be in a space where everyone is feeling a joy or pain um, or excitement, whatever it is, whether it's a funeral or concert or church or theater or whatnot, it is to be reminded that you are human and that you are not alone. Um, And that is so crucial, a reminder for me. Our guest today is R. Eric Thomas, author of a new collection of essays called Congratulations, The Best Is Over. More after the break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. 
From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado, back in your feeds with a reminder about our Fresh Air Plus bonus episodes. Hip-hop music just turned 50, and to celebrate, we're listening back to Terry's interview with Grandmaster Flash. You know what I'd like to do? I'd like to hear that again, but this time... Keep your microphone on and have you describe what you're doing as we listen to it. If you want to hear what that sounds like for yourself, subscribe to Fresh Air Plus at plus.npr.org. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley, and my guest today is author and humorist R. Eric Thomas. He's written a new series of essays called Congratulations, The Best is Over, which recounts Thomas's journey back to his hometown of Baltimore. Thomas is the author of the best-selling book, Here for It, or How to Save Your Soul in America, Reclaiming Her Time, The Power of Maxine Waters, and The Kings of Be More. Okay, so Eric, you and I were guests on a show together back in 2019. It was Bill Radke's show, The Record, on KUOW in Seattle. And you were there to host a moth event. And the topic was how to feel joy when the world is burning. And we talked about anxiety. We talked about our complicated feelings about home. This was before the pandemic. (laughs) I mean, I'm actually just laughing at this because it's like, okay, we we didn't have anything to worry about by comparison. (laughs) True. One thing you said is that you have anxiety around performing for people in your day-to-day. Like, you get anxious in social situations because you think you might let people down. Mm -hmm. Do you think that people have, like, an expectation that you you will make them laugh? Is that what it is? I think so. It's so funny. Literally, during the break, I was like, am I being funny enough on this interview? (laughs) (laughs) But now that I've said it, like, the genie's out of the bottle, and who knows? You know, whatever. But I do think... People, you know, people will see me at the Moth, um, which is, I think, one. it's another church for me. It is a place where I feel most at home, most at live, in front of an audience, riffing, telling stories. And people will come up to me and my husband and they'll say, oh, you know, Eric must be so fun at home. You must laugh all the time. And he's very gracious. He's always like, yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm very boring at home. Because at home, I'm like, oh, you know, I did the budget or, oh, the dishes or yeah, the, the most boring yeah, quotidian stuff. stuff. So I do feel this pressure, but I think it is self-imposed where I am trying to marry the what I feel is the the ultimate form of myself, the platonic form of myself, which is someone on, you know, on stage and um, telling stories and um, being in in community, but also like contributing to the life of the community, I'm trying to marry that with the quotidian um, and with a person who is just reading a book on the subway. Sometimes, you know, I'm like, you're not going to do everything funny, but I want to. Oh, my gosh, I'd love to. Right. Because, I mean, OK, so I listened to a talk you did um I think it was at the library in Philadelphia. It it turned into a podcast, but it was it was a yeah, it was a talk that you did and the audience was in the palm of your hand. I mean, they were 
it, it was roaring laughter with every single punchline. And that's got to feel good for you. Um, but then you don't want to be that person at a dinner party, I'm guessing. So you're not going to like give punchline after punchline, like you're going to be a human being. So that's what's going through your head is like the mix of both on how to be just a person, but also kind of make people like you and laugh. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I work through in therapy a lot. I'm also sort of like, you said, you know, you don't want to just be punchline after punchline. You want to be a human being. And I was like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about like being a human. Being a human, overrated. Um, every part of my body hurts at all times. Um, and um, But I do. I do have this desire to be real. And I don't want to put a barrier between myself with humor. And one of the things with the way that my humor has developed over the course of the years, it used to be very self-deprecating. And I realized, oh, that's a person who doesn't like themselves. And mm. as I started to like myself, my stories changed. I used to tell this story about joining the Gay Softball League and um, in, here in Philly. And a lot of the, the story f for a long time was just about like, oh, I was so bad at at softball and like you know i was like too gay for the gay softball league um which you know i was like they put me in far right field i was like the right fielders <laughs> understudy um and i was like singing damn yankees and they're like we don't Stop. need this right now no <laughs> but ultimately i realized as i grew to love myself and appreciate who i am i was like oh this isn't a story about <laughs> how bad it is to be an eccentric trying to play softball. This is a story about the drag of masculinity and putting on the drag of sportsmanship in the, in, in the interest of making community. And when I realized that, the story changed and the jokes changed. And it became a funnier story, actually, because I wasn't punching down on myself. Like, why? The world will do that enough for me. You're a screenwriter, as we know writer, the writer's strike has put um, any television and film writing on hold. I think I read somewhere where you said if the union doesn't get all the things they're asking for on behalf of its members, you might not feel like there's a future for you in television. Yeah, and I think that's – I'm very fortunate um, because I have written for a couple of television shows. I've developed a couple more television shows. I am in a small minority of people uh, in terms of – the um, the ability to make a living off of television and to see my work fairly compensated. Um, but we are in this existential struggle um, for fair compensation, for opportunity, particularly as a black screenwriter and as a queer screenwriter. There is a lot of back and forth about authenticity and voice. We want your voice. We want your story. But there is also this... Um, belief that at the end of the day, there's a, this room is built for a certain kind of person, and it's not that person. And so one of the things that this the strike is about is about making sure that the, the doors of the rooms stay open, that the walls stay expanded, that we're not shrinking down to one kind of person or to one kind of voice generated by computer, by AI. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what the future looks like for me in television. It's only been a couple of years, but I'm very, very proud to be on strike. Um, it's the first time I've been on strike, first time for me to be in a, in a picket line, but I come from a, a union family. You know, my, uh, my mother for years was a member of the Baltimore City uh, Teachers Union, um, and I understand the, 
um, the power of unions. And I, it is another community. It is another space that says we exist in our fullness and we cannot be um, bullied or ignored um, or told to be smaller, uh, to be less, or to try to survive or nothing. You know, I was thinking about um, how many writers and other folks in the industry have probably moved on to other jobs already and what that actually means for storytelling and representation, as you mentioned. Just thinking about what a long-term strike over time as people who have just gotten into the industry like you are being forced to make these choices to mm-hmm. find other ways of, of surviving. Yeah, in but I think one of the things that's always been true is that most of us are already doing multiple things to survive. You know, there's very, very few people who are making a living fully as screenwriters. Um, and, you know, for instance, I'm, you know, I'm talking about my new book. And so, like, it is – I'm fortunate that I get to write in m- multiple mediums. But it also – if we don't return, um, either because the strike makes that – uh, not the strike, the actions of um, uh, of of the studios make it impossible, um, or because we choose to to go seek our stories elsewhere, it robs um, everybody of a possibility. Um, and and that is not the strike. That's not the WGA's fault. That's not the striking writers' fault. That is um, the people who have the power to say like, we want to tell more stories refusing, abdicating that power. And if we don't see ourselves in, on screen, on television, um, then we don't know necessarily that, that um, all the different parts of our stories are possible. And that's very important to me. If you're just joining us, our guest today is television writer, playwright, and author R. Eric Thomas. He's written a new book of essays called Congratulations, The Best is Over. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. You know, um, a big part of your writing, which... All great writers do this, but a, a a thing that you do is kind of like put you put a stake in the ground for really important moments. Um, 
In 2020, you wrote this powerful article for Elle called It Doesn't Matter If You're Good. And just to put it into context, you wrote this article just days after George Floyd was murdered. And in it, you write that as a Black man, you learned at some point how to perform being non-threatening. And you learned that often it matters less how well you perform and more whether the audience for said performance believes it or wants to believe it. And you go on to say that it's futile anyway, because if I am powerless over the reception that I get, what does it matter how I approach the world? And I'm just wondering about that, because you have such a disarmingly funny and approachable disposition. And part of that is obviously just who you are. But some of it, maybe, is also another layer of you putting on in a way that makes you non-threatening. And when I say put on, I don't mean it as a fake thing, but it's part of your personality as a core of how you've been able to move through the world. Is that how you see it? Is that, is that true? I think that I have had to learn very, a very hard lesson about the difference between performing obsequiousness, performing um, belonging for white people, and then just performing myself. And I think that I've, moved to a space where I am more performing myself. But I think that many, if not most, or all um, black men, um, men of color, um, learn how to indicate to others, to not to people who are not black, to white people particularly, that they are not going to do whatever boogeyman fantasy um, that uh, these people have cooked up. And sometimes, yes, sometimes that is paranoia. But that paranoia, I think, is rooted in lived actual experiences. And when I wrote that article for Elle, it was uh, also days after uh, Christian Cooper, um, the the birder in New York, um, had the police called on him for birding. And um, uh, a CNN reporter, I believe his name is Omar Jimenez, was was uh, reporting on protests and was arrested live on television. And a lot of the commentary around both of those things was, can you believe this? These people are so presentable. He, you know, he's a glasses-wearing birder. And I was like, you don't, you shouldn't have to be a glasses-wearing birder for people to be shocked. You co-wrote Apple TV's Pluses, Dickinson, and FX's Better Things. Um, what is it like collaborating with other writers in the writer's room? It, it is like nothing I've ever experienced. I, I wish you could do a writer's room for a book or for a play or for what I'm having for breakfast. I really like I always want mm-hmm. that level of feedback. And it's just so exciting um, to be circling a, an idea and putting it's like it's like you're making stone soup like that book you know you're putting a little bit in and someone else is putting a little bit in and you're agreeing with each other and you're learning from each other the the dickinson room the, it was over zoom um and the first time i logged in you know i, I looked at the screen the little squares and in one square i see z-way the comedian um and an author and, and, and television host uh, but at that point she was mostly writing a comedy and I see Lynn Nottage, um, an icon, uh, a one of my idols. And I was like, oh, I'm in the wrong room. But uh, I like, closed my laptop and logged back in. And I wasn't in the wrong room. And so to be in that space with them and so many other people was both affirming and also just so invigorating as a writer because you, you, you learn 
to think how other people think, and that gives you more tools and makes your world bigger. I'm wondering, you have such um, an affinity for storytelling, and you use all the mediums to to tell stories with the moth, um, with the written word. Who are the storytellers that you admired growing up? I first learned about using your voice as a um, <laughs> comedic weapon and a comedic tool from reading David Rakoff and David Sedaris. Um, yeah, yeah. In- incredible, incredible writers, incredible, like, queer perspectives. Um, I also learned a lot reading, um, uh, you know, people who are not writing narrative nonfiction. I re- learned a lot about storytelling from Toni Morrison. Uh, when I first read Colson Whitehead, all the lights in the house of my mind went off, uh, or went on, I should say. And um, so, you know, those were, you know, Colson Whitehead, I think his first book, um, well, the first book I read of his was The Intuitionist, which was, I think I, I read that maybe right before I went to college. And I was just like, oh, this person is using every tool at his disposal to tell a really complex and beautiful story. And I've been I've been hooked ever since. What is your relationship with Baltimore today? Oh, you has know, it changed after that experience living there? Oh yeah! Oh my gosh, it has. And um, I think of the city now in its. I realize that I was not giving the city a fair shake, and that I was doing the same thing that those people would do to me. I was like, I know how bad it is. I know all the local politics. I know, you know, they can't get the red line together, um, which is a subway that they've been talking about building for 30 years and they really should build. Um, And I realized, okay, if I'm not letting Baltimore be new, then why should I get to be new in this city? And Kings of Beemore was the turning point for me. Kings of Beemore is a book about the city in all of its beauty and its diversity and its possibility. And it wasn't hard to write. It was the easiest. It was it was the quickest writing process of all my books and the most fulfilling. And I said to myself, oh, my, oh, this place that I felt such pain in, I get to craft this story that is nothing but joy for me and hopefully for others. So I worried when I was writing Congratulations, the Best is Over, that people who live and love Baltimore would see the same old story getting played out that they would say, oh, this person, yet another person trashing Baltimore. But, you know, the response so far has been people saying, I understand that it's a journey sometimes, um, but I got to the end of the journey. Our Eric Thomas, thank you so much for this conversation and for this book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our Eric Thomas's new book of essays is called Congratulations, the Best is Over. Coming up, jazz critic Kevin Whitehead reviews a new collection of recordings by pianist Sonny Clark. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. 
identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscoloredchoice.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Scholastic with Hummingbird by Natalie Lloyd. Now in paperback, Hummingbird is a funny, magical tale about Olive, a girl with brittle bone disease who refuses to let her disability stand in the way of adventure. Jazz pianist Sonny Clark grew up in and around Pittsburgh and made his first recordings in L.A. during the heyday of cool jazz in the 1950s. He later moved to New York in 1957, where the hotter music was more to his taste, and signed with the prestigious Blue Note label. There's now a new box set collection of all of his Blue Note recordings. Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead has this review. Sonny Clark on his tune, News for Lulu, 1957. Clark was his own man on piano. You could hear what he owed to Horace Silver's grooving and Bud Powell's complexity, but Clark had his own fleet, nimble, carefully crafted personal style. His fingers are pistons dancing on the keys, making the strings sing out, and he's swinging all the time, even playing a single note. His fluent lines can be almost glib sometimes, but bluesy feeling keeps him grounded. Sonny Clark with Paul Chambers on bass and Philly Joe Jones on drums. The pianist holds his own at that quick pace, but medium tempos give Clark more room to fine-tune his timing and force at the keys. On a 1959 take of his tune, Royal Flush, Clark organizes his stealthy solo around a catchy rotating figure that's not part of the melody, as if he's composing in the moment. Sonny Clark recorded nine sessions for Blue Note between 1957 and 61. His excellent rhythm partners include drummers Lewis Hayes, Arthur Taylor, and Billy Higgins, and bassists Wilbur Ware and Jimmy Merritt. On the piano's altered blues, some Clark bars. Bassist Paul Chambers and drummer Art Blakey give the beat almost a country lope. The blues is folk music. 
their bass and drums that fit right into a rockabilly band. recorded Sonny Clark in trios and in quintets and sextets with excellent horn players. They include Art Farmer, Donald Byrd, or Tommy Turrentine on trumpet, trombonist Curtis Fuller, and on saxophones, John Coltrane, Jackie McLean, or Clifford Jordan. The scene stealer on Clark's 1959 LP, My Conception, is tenor Hank Mobley, who was having a very good day in the studio. Clark's ballad, My Conception, taps Mobley's romantic side. By 1961, when Sonny Clark recorded his fine and final Blue Note album, Leapin' and Lopin', he'd been spending a little time around Thelonious Monk and was feeling his influence. For this date, he hired Monk's saxophonist Charlie Rouse and a tuneful bassist Monk would hire later, Butch Warren. Monk's influence is playing on Clark's riffing tune, Voodoo, and on his stubborn piano under Rouse's solo. Months after recording Leapin' and Lopin', Sonny Clark died of a heroin overdose at 32. Much music he'd recorded sat in the vaults until the 1970s, when his rediscovery by Japanese jazz fans in particular prompted Blue Note to gradually release all his stockpiled recordings. Now we have in one place everything he recorded for the label as leader. The six-CD Sonny Clark Roundup, the complete Blue Note sessions, comes from Web Order House Mosaic Records, with expert program notes by Blue Note Authority Bob Blumenthal. Sonny Clark deserves such first-class treatment. His playing brims with the crisp, tuneful creativity that draws listeners to jazz in the first place.
Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, the essential guide to jazz stories on film. He reviewed Sonny Clark, the complete Blue Note sessions on the Mosaic label. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, Marshall Project journalist Maurice Chama joins us to talk about music programs in prison. He explores how art and music can help build hope and dignity within prison walls and helps us understand the mindset of those who commit crimes and are imprisoned. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorak directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com/npr. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.